Well, good morning to each one of you. We welcome you here. It's good. It's been good to be here. It's been good to worship the Lord together. I want to welcome some of those visiting Janice. It's good, Shannon. It's good to have you all here, as well as uh, some others. There's somebody else that I'm... Oh, Lawrence and Tina, thank you for coming this morning. It's good to have you with us. Uh, let's, let's open our Bibles this morning. I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah 6. And I know this is uh, stepping out from my, away from my normal uh, passage in Ephesians 4. And, and I was, as, as I was preparing this morning, I came across a passage and a concept there concerning not grieving the Holy Spirit. And I felt like I needed to spend more time and didn't have the time to spend on it. And so I'm, I, as I prayed about it, I felt like the Lord, maybe the Lord is, 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 is asking me to, to do something else. And the longer I prayed, the more I felt at peace with this passage and with this message. And I know we've heard it here several times, but uh, it never, the Bible never grows old. The Word never grows old. And this passage is a need for our day. We live in a time that's not unlike the time where this passage was written. In fact, it's very much like it. And so let's take heed and let's uh, pay attention not to what I have to say as much as what God has to say to us. Because this, this passage speaks into our day today. And we want to let him do that because it is his word that is going to sustain us. And it's him who's going to sustain us through whatever he has for us. Beginning in chapter 1 of verse 6, let's read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, at, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from, with the tongues from off the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not perceive. Keep on seeing. I'm sorry, let me back up. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy. 
and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. We'll stop right there. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we come before you this morning, and it is with joy that we can come to you, and we can humbly bow ourselves before you. And Father, we want to thank you this morning for the great gulf that you spanned to come to us. Father, the great price that was paid for our redemption, the great gift of grace and the ministration of that grace by the Holy Spirit. Lord, now as we come to this passage, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we may see what you have for us. Lord, inflame our hearts that we may rejoice in your truth and in your goodness. We may rejoice in your wisdom, righteousness. Lord, move our wills that we may run after you with pure hearts, wanting to love you more and serve you more than what we have before. We ask this all in your name. Well, as we note, this passage of Scripture is a very dramatic one. It, is a, it comes at a very dramatic time in Israel's life, in the, in the history of Israel. Isaiah was brought into this world during a time when King Uzziah was king, and King Uzziah had been a king that pleased the Lord. If we were to, to look at this this passage of Scripture, it would come from a man who is actually in somewhat in shock. He's somewhat stunned by the events of, of his life. And one of the things that, that I know we hear this all the time from liberals where they say, do not let a crisis go to waste. Well, I want you to know that God owns that first. He will not let a crisis go to waste. A crisis is often brought into our lives so that we understand something about Him. So that there's something we can know about Him. So that we gain in our understanding of Him. So that we're broadened and we're, we're strengthened in our conviction about his, who He is. In fact, this is so important that it's, it's what God wrote His Word, the reason God wrote His Word, and the reason we have the history of, given to us in a record is so that we can understand something about God. A.W. Tozer once said, the most important thing you know... I'm sorry, let me back up. A.W. Tozer once said, the most important thing about you is what you know of God. When you stop and think about that, everything that you do stems from what you know of God. Everything that we are comes out of an understanding of the Holy One. We can't avoid it. It is who we are. We were created for Him 
We believe God to be who we believe God to be affects our lives in every way. And it's more than anything else that we could that we could ever know. The knowledge of God affects our lives more than anything else we could ever know. High views of God, lofty views of God, transcendent views of God will lead us to high and holy and transcendent living. Low views of God will likewise lead us to low and immoral living. And so this morning, we reflect what we see of God. And the problem isn't that God has changed. The problem is that man cannot see God as he is. We all need to be brought back to this truth. Whether we're, whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we're married, whether we're unmarried, this text is a text of personal renewal. It is a place and a time for us to come face to face with the holiness of God. This morning we would like to look at this as, as Isaiah saw it. Well, first of all, we have the crisis. Beginning in verse 1, and that begins in the year that King Uzziah died. We must understand that Uzziah had been a king for 52 years in Israel, and Uzziah was crowned king when he was 16 years old. We could go back to 2 Chronicles 26, 1-5. I'm not going to turn there, but if you want to look back, you can. 2 Chronicles 26, 1-5 tells us that Uzziah... That Uzziah, when he was young, his ways, he walked in the ways of the Lord, and his ways pleased the Lord. And the Lord began to bless him. The Lord began to make Israel strong because he ruled righteously. And it goes back to the Proverbs that says, when the righteous are in rule, there is great rejoicing. But when when the wicked are in rule, there is much confusion or shouting. Or, or turmoil. Uzziah was a righteous king for 52 years, meaning that what he did came from the law of God and he used the law of God in the peoples, in ruling the people. But toward the end of his life, he did something that no king should have ever done. He went into the holy place where only the priest was to offer incense to God. And he there attempted to offer incense to God in a manner that God forbade anybody but the priest to do. And the priest and 80 other men with him came in and withstood Uzziah to the face. And said, this is not for you to do. You should not be doing this. This is wrong. And Uzziah was there with the censer in his hand. And as he was there, he became very angry at them withstanding him. And immediately he turned leprous. He became a leper. He was full of leprosy. In fact, he died full of leprosy. And so you can imagine the kind of crisis that the people were in. Here was a king that had 
had built this country up and had given this nation its its name and its freedom and God was able to start working and God was able to work in ways that they had never seen before. And he was successful until he became strong is what the scripture says. When he became strong and pride entered into his heart and into his life, he fell. And Uzziah died from that leprosy that God struck him with. And here is Isaiah coming to the temple or in the temple, seeing, seeking God. Isaiah is here, and, and, he's, and he's in a, in a mode of, of, I don't know what to do. This has been so good for 52 years. Now, God, why did you allow this to happen here and now? It was a time of great crisis for all the people. Isaiah was coming not only on behalf of his life, but on behalf of his own people. And it's these times, friends, that God causes us to see him for who he is. He kind of strikes right in the middle of our success, if you please. And he calls us to follow him with a whole heart. He calls us to walk with him in a pure mind. He calls us to live for Him with one purpose and one desire. And that's what's happening with Isaiah this morning. God will purposely drive us at times to a crisis so that we understand the importance of this. Oftentimes when we become successful, and we've seen it here in this country to the point where we've been even been called by people a Christian nation. And we've intermingled the philosophies of men with the Word of God. We've intermingled the ways that we do things with the ways God does things. Sometimes God wants to just shake us up a bit. Bring us to a place where we understand that we got to come back to the truth. One of the things that I have seen in the last 30, 25, 20 years, I should say, is that the, the level of, of, an, of an acknowledgement of God in the public is, is eroded today. It's, it's, it's nothing like it was 20 years ago. But you know what? There were many people out here talking about God, saying they knew God, and they went to church every Sunday, but they weren't right with God. They lived lives of wickedness. And if there's one thing that good that's happened now is that it's divided the men from the boys, the sheep from the goats, if you please. If you're going to stand up and be a Christian today, you're going to pay the price. It's going to be real or it's not. And it makes it clear. A crisis will always make faith clear. It will always make the way of faith clear. And you, you could talk... You can, you can ask Brother Terry as he goes to the, to the, uh, to the streets of Nashville, or he, as he goes to, the, uh, goes to the MTSU, to the university. You know, the moment you begin to hold up the holiness of God and the truth of God's Word, people become angry. They become upset because you're invading their space with the truth. 
And so this, my friends, is what we need from time to time. And yes, it upsets us at times. And yes, it does cause us grief. But we, but we must understand that the knowledge of God is of more value than our comfort. God is not going to give us more than we can bear. But an understanding of God is going to benefit us far more than more comfort. How do we view God when He allows our world to be shaken? When things are rocked a bit, when we get knocked over, when we get turned upside down and we have to do things differently than we did before. How do we view God in that time? You know, the flesh wants to get angry at God. When death comes into our lives, when we have loss, these things, friends, they shake us to the core. Can we still worship Him in these times? You see, God may drive us to the crisis, but the crisis is not the end of the story, friend. The crisis is not the end of the story. Let's notice what else he, he faced here. He got confronted. We don't only have a crisis, we have a confrontation. Isaiah came face to face with a holy God. And there are many who look at this whole issue and they, and they, and they we're not sure. We, all we know is Isaiah saw something here. And whether he saw Christ pre-incarnate in the temple, whether he saw he was able to have, have the, the, the heavens open and he looked right into the very throne room of God, we're not exactly sure. All we know is that he says he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. Now, when we notice the Lord here, that is capital L, small o, small r, small d. It is the word, it is the, it is the, the term for Adonai. When you have all capital letters, the Lord, it is the word Yahweh. Yahweh has to do with His being. He is the eternal existing one. Adonai means the sovereign one. The one who rules over all. The one who is king over all. And so what he's saying here is, I saw Adonai. I saw the, the sovereign one sitting on a throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The truth was that Isaiah... Let me back up. Isaiah came into the temple seeking God, but the truth was that God was seeking Isaiah. God was looking for Isaiah. And though God knew where he was, he, it was God who confronted him with his holiness here. He saw the sovereign one on a throne. And friends, we, like, we have heard so much today in our society about God being our friend. God being our brother. And, he, and Christ is our brother. He is termed as our elder brother in Scripture. But God here is the king. And he sits on a throne. And it's something that we're not really accustomed to in this country because we have a president, we have, we have leadership. But when there's a monarchy where a king sits on the throne, that whole realm of rule rests upon his shoulders. And it all comes from him. 
And the reality is that that's how God rules. He is the supreme one. He is the sovereign one. And he rules from his throne. And so as, as he was in a mode of crisis on this earth, the sovereign one was still sitting on the throne. The sovereign one was still ruling the affairs of men. This sovereign one had ruled in the affairs of Israel at this time. Friends, the sovereign one is at rule today. We may not like our earthly king, our earthly ruler, but God is still on the throne. The sovereign one rules in the heavens, friends. And it is his rule that is in the end going to be shown as the right rule. Let's not forget that though men rise up and declare that there is no God, men will rise up and do wickedly and get by with it for a while. We talk about getting by with murder. Somebody's getting by with murder right now. But it's only going to happen for a time. And he will give full account for his deeds in the day of judgment. And it's that way for all of us, friends. God will hold the rulers of this world accountable. He will bring them to full judgment. He sits on the throne. God is lofty and lifted up here. He is high and lifted up. He's not just... He's not just any common king. Now let's notice, it says that the train of his robe filled the temple. In ancient days when a king had a train, the train was a sign of his sovereignty. The bigger the train, the longer the train, the more sovereign power he had. And so what does it say about the sovereignty of God? It is that his, his sovereignty filled The temple, it filled all the being there, all the place there. His robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, and each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. These powerful beings who reside in the presence of God are fitted for their task. God fits every, every person and every creature that He creates for the place that He has made them. Fish do not have feathers. Birds can't use scales. You know, they use, they, they're fitted with the things that they need for the environment that they're in to glorify Him in the place that they are in. So it is with the seraphim. They're covered with, they have six wings. With two, they cover their face. No one can be in the presence of God apart from His protection for them. He told Moses in Deuteronomy 33 that no one shall see my face and live. And therefore, to be in the presence of God continually, they must cover their face. They have to cover their faces. Well, he says he covers his feet with two. Two of them are to cover his earthliness, if you please. Feet are the place where we put, where we connect with the ground. It is the lowliest part of our being. And so we cover that in this, in this presence of the Lord because he is heavenly. He is, he is above 
all earthly things. And with two, he flies. So this magnificent creature called a seraphim, he's made for the presence of God. He's built to give glory to God. And let's notice what he says. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, when he says holy, 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 he is ascribing to God the the marked character of God's person. He doesn't say love, love, love. He doesn't say wrath, wrath, wrath. He doesn't say mercy, mercy, mercy. But it's holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is the overarching characteristic of God himself. So when they cry holy, 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 it is in an antiphonal thing where they have it going back and forth to one another. Something we, know, we must note is that the Hebrew language, when something is given for emphasis, it's repeated. When Jesus used to say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say to you. Did he have, how many times does Jesus have to say something for it to be true? One time. Why does he say verily, verily? So that we understand. For our learning. This is important. Take heed. Pay attention. The only place in the Hebrew literature in the Scriptures where there's a threefold ascription to God is in the place where God is called holy, holy, holy. It's only here and it's in Revelation as well. But it's both places. It's in, a, it's in ascription to God as being holy. Listen, friends, I think we should primarily, first of all, think of God as being holy. He needs to be esteemed as holy. In fact, when we, when we go to the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus is teaching His disciples to pray, what does He say? Pray, hallowed be your name. Or that word hallowed doesn't mean just holy be your name. It means you need, to be a, you need to be esteeming God as holy. Hallowed means to hold Him up as holy. It means to reverence Him as holy. To give Him the rightful place of being holy. And so, hallowed is, is, a, is a right term for God. He needs to be esteemed as holy. This is how we ought to pray, by the way. But this is how we ought to think. And this is how we ought to live. Isaiah is confronted with the holiness of God in a way that he's never seen before. His sovereign influence, his robe fills the whole temple he is the sovereign one over all, and his leadership is known, his influence is known in all the world. Psalm 33, verses 9 and 10, he says, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He makes the plans of peoples of no effect. Nothing is impossible with God. He spoke this world into existence. He can speak into our lives and He can change the direction of history as He pleases. And let's not take for granted this morning that God is going to allow sin to go on as it always has. 
anything that has caused his name to not be esteemed as holy is going to be brought into, into judgment because he is holy. Anything here that takes down from God's holiness, detracts from it, distracts from it, is a lie. It is, it is, a, it is something that has been brought on by Satan to confuse us, to deceive us, to make us believe that God is not who he really is. And so this morning, we must be confronted with this reality that God is holy. There is none like Him in all the world. There is no one who stands beside Him. There is no one who overcomes Him and overpowers Him. Isaiah is not only awed, but he is a bit stunned. He is a bit overwhelmed. And this is the right view of God. If someone really has truly seen a vision of God in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, they are immediately awed and stunned. Most, most people have, have said, I remember reading a place in, 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 a, in a magazine where someone was taking a, a poll of the people that went to church and they were saying how that a great number of the people that quit going to church, they asked them, why did you quit? Why are you not going to church anymore? And they said, they're bored. They're bored. Why are you bored in church? Could we say that probably because God's not there? Isaiah was not bored in the presence of God. There's no boredom there. You may be frightened to death, you may be in awe and worship, but there's no boredom. And listen, my friends, if you come and if your understanding of God is one of boredom, you don't have a right understanding of God. God is holy. And He is to be feared. He is to be reverenced. He's to be lifted up. He's to be esteemed above all else. And when we have the right view of God, we'll be a bit stunned. We'll be a bit in awe. We'll be a bit shaken. We'll be a bit moved out of our place, just like the posts of these doors were when those angels cried out. We'll be a bit undone. We must turn our, our gaze to Him by faith and believe what God says about Himself in His Word. I want to ask you this morning, how high is your view of God? How high is your view of God? Have you really seen this God in His Word? Does that, how, that the estimation that you have of Him? Do you have a biblical view of our sovereign God? Or do you have a man-centered view of God? There is a huge difference. The one who has a biblical view will submit himself immediately to the authority of God in his life. A man-centered view believes that I have God under my thumb. Me and God got it all figured out. We're good buddies. We'll do what we please. That's not the picture the Bible gives of God. That's not what Isaiah saw here. That is all but what he saw. 
Now, not only was there a consternation, I'm sorry, not only was there a crisis, and not only was he confronted, but now he's in consternation. And it ought to cause great consternation. When God said, no man shall see my face and live, no man's going to be able to stand before me and, and be able to survive my holiness. And, he, and Isaiah is here gazing at the high and lifted Holy One. And he's alive. So now he says, woe is me. Woe is me. And it's no wonder. He sees the power, the awesomeness of God. As those angels are, are shouting, are singing to one another, holy, holy, holy. And the temple posts are moving at their voices. Not only that is the fact that God is pure, without sin, lifted up before his eyes. The temple is filled with smoke. There's a sense of power that he cannot evade. Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. Listen, friends, it is in the holiness of God that we see ourselves as we are. It is within the holiness of God, as we get a view of God, we see who we are. This is how Isaiah can say, woe is me. In fact, Isaiah says that word woe means cursed. Or I'm condemned, I'm fit to die. I have sin in my life. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people who are also unclean in their mouths, their dirty mouth, their filthy mouth. He said, I dwell there. I live there. My eyes have seen God. And He hasn't consumed me yet. <clears throat> and we note that if he's going to ever be at peace with God, it's going to have to be that first he has a fear of God. Nothing, nobody comes to a right relationship with God without having a fear of Him. Without coming to the awe of Him. Without coming to a, a sense of, can I say, holy dread. It is the dread of Him, the fear of Him, the, aweness, the, the awesomeness of Him that drives us to find a place of repentance. It is that upon our lives which moves us to change the direction of our pace, the direction of our walk. Nothing else will move us apart from the holiness of God being brought into our lives. Why do men brazenly commit heinous crimes and only desire to do more of it. They haven't seen the holiness of God, friend. They've never met with God. They've never come face to face with the God who is high and lifted up and owns them. You see, they knew who really owns the world. 
they'd humble themselves before they committed these things against him. They have an understanding, but they don't know him. He doesn't know them. In the day when they will see who he is, they will bow the knee. It's going to be too late. God's going to have that door shut. Many are going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? He said, I don't know you. Don't know who you are. Now, does God know who they are? Yes, there's a sense in which he does. But he doesn't know them intimately. They've never been in his presence. They didn't see the holiness of God that Isaiah saw here. Our joy and happiness comes out of this, friends. So this light, fluffy attitude about God is of no value in knowing Him. This whole thing of being frivolous in the presence of God comes from man-centeredness. An understanding of God in His holiness and His righteousness and as He is brings a sense of reverence. And there's where we find joy and peace. There's the peace that passes all understanding. There's the joy that cannot be quenched. There's the love that knows no bounds. But my friends, we don't find that until we've come to this place where we're not only in deep consternation, but we're under conviction. He came to a conviction of sin. I am not just under the displeasure of God. I'm a man who sinned against Him. He has the right to kill me right now. He has the right to do away with me. It would be right for Him to judge me and punish me. That's what He's saying when He says, woe is me. If God did the right thing with me right now, He'd send me to hell. Because I am a sinner. And one of the reasons I believe that he noticed, first of all, was his unclean lips, was the fact that it is often in the mouth. It is the means of the tongue by which the heart is revealed. The heart is most revealed by the way we talk. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Isaiah is shattered, he's devastated because he's in the presence of God and he sees his sin. He is acknowledging his own sin. and Praise God for this. He's acknowledging it. He's not running from it. He's not trying to cover it up. He can't cover it up. He knows it's there and he knows God knows it's there. But he only examines and compares himself to God. He will only... Look at God alone. He will not look at his brother and say, well, I haven't said some of the things he said. I haven't went where she went. Or I haven't been doing that like they did. No, he looked only to God. And he said, I am a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Listen, friends, it's that. That will drive a person to do what it takes. It's that which will 
Look for what God will provide. That's the only thing that it takes. It takes all of that. Unless, my friends, we ever come to the place of woe is me, we will never come to the place of being cleansed. He acknowledges his sin. He confesses his sin. And I'm sure that if he'd have been talking with other people in Israel, many people would have said, you're one of the better ones among us, Isaiah. You've been preaching the word of God. You've been teaching the people the truth. You've been trying to promote the works of God. He was a prophet of God. But none of that matters here for him. None of that means a thing to him here. Listen, I don't care where you're at. Are you a teacher? Are you a preacher? Are you a Sunday school teacher? Are you some sort of spiritual helper? Are you a deacon in the church? Are you you a father in the home? I, I don't care who you are. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we come here. And we say, we come to the place of acknowledging our sin. And we understand that our sin rightly leads to the judgment and condemnation that God gives to sinners. I want to ask you this morning, does your understanding of God, how you view God, reveal sin in your life? Have you seen God to the place in in, in such a way that it revealed who you are before Him? If you know who He is, In fact, you will be able to see in the reflection of who He is yourself. James says that the Word of God is like a man who looks in a glass. He beholds his face in a glass. The Word of God is so pure, it shows back to us who we are. This is what it means to face God. To face who we really are. But James there says... That if he goes his way and he forgets what sort of manner of man he was, he wasn't changed. That revelation did him absolutely no good. But let us note that if you're going to have your sin revealed, you know that something must take place, that you must be cleansed. You know that you need the cleansing of God. And that's what we come to next. Not only do we have a confrontation, and not only do we have consternation, and not only do we have conviction of sin, but we now have cleansing. We have cleansing from sin. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. This this seraphim takes a hot coal from off the altar. This is the likeness of the the, uh, crucifixion of Christ and His giving Himself for our sins. And He takes that hot live coal and He applies it to the mouth of Isaiah. And He says, this has touched your lips. And yes, it seared Him. Yes, it blistered him he was permanently scarred 
with this, with this happening. For good. He was scarred for good. Notice he says it's taken away your sin. Listen, friends, you cannot meet God. You cannot say, I've had an encounter with Christ. Or I have been born again and be the same person you were when you left. When you leave is when you came. Isaiah was a different man. He got cleansed. This is a cleansing that worked down into his soul. It was that which purified his heart. It was that which made him a new creation, if you please. It is that which caused his sin to be put away. Yes, it is a terrifying experience. It is a painful experience. It is a severe mercy, if you please. But it is a cleansing experience. This is a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice for us. That He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That Christ became our sin so that we might be made righteousness to God. Listen, friends, that's what's going on here. He's taking of Christ and applying it to Isaiah. And he's saying, this, is, this, this coal has touched your mouth. Christ has cleansed you from your sin. And notice it wasn't Isaiah getting a coal off the altar. It was the angel getting a coal off the altar. God applies salvation, friends. God applies the forgiveness of sin. God applies the cleansing. It's a work of God. And when we come to the reality that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, our only hope is that God can cleanse us with a coal from the cross, if you please. With a fiery, red, hot coal of salvation. That is all we can ask for. That is everything to us. It is all we need and it is everything that we need. It is a complete and it is a thorough work. I want to ask you this morning. Do you know this morning that you are in the presence of God with sin in your life that you have not admitted? You've not confessed. You've not held up and said, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner in your presence. Listen, revival and reformation, they come with confessing and repenting of sin. When there is repentance, it's because God has moved to show you who he is. God is bringing you to repentance. And oh, would to God that He would do it in a large manner, in a large way across this land. We have more people going to churches today than we've ever had before. But we have so few that know what this means in reality in their life. It doesn't change them. They go and they come. And the names are changed to protect the innocent. 
but nothing is done about the sin. Nothing is done about the cleansing. Nothing gets done about the confrontation, about the conviction. Nothing. You see, my friends, when the sin is taken away, the iniquity is taken away and the sin is purged, it changes our thinking about God. And it changes His ability to use us. Notice that He says, I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? God never speaks. God never says a word until this point. We all want to be used by God. We all want to have His blessing and His approval on our lives. We all would love to see multiple people being ministered to under His hand in our lives. Listen, friends. If we've come before the face of God and we've continued to hold out our sin, on our sin. We haven't seen him in the way Isaiah saw him here yet. And we cannot be used. We're unfit to be used. It is, it is only when the sin has been cleansed, the iniquity is cleansed and the sin is purged, that we can expect that God will ask, who's going to go for me? Who's going to go for me? God has willing volunteers and the reason he has willing volunteers is because he has cleansed them of their sins. We have more and more difficulty as time goes on being, having people who are willing to be used by God. And I dare say it's because there are people who are less, we have more people who are less willing to come to repentance over their sin. We're not... The Christian life is not built up with money and lots of people, plenty of opportunities, lots of organization. The Christian life is built up with holiness. And when God has His holy way in our lives, He will use that holiness in our lives to do what no, nobody else can do. And so that's why I tell you this morning, this is an issue between us and God, personally. He humbly volunteers, having no idea what God was going to ask. That's true submission. He says, your people will be willing in the day of your power. Or they will be volunteers in the day of your power. And that's what he's talking about. In the day when God shows his power to cleanse you of your sin, it makes us willing to follow him. We'll go where he asks us to go, and it won't be easy. Because we're not just giving eight hours for a paycheck. We're giving our lives for his service. There's a big difference. In fact, he says, I need someone to go for me. 
And who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And God does not have to ask any more questions of him. God doesn't have to say, well, what did you do with your dirty mouth? God knows what happens with it, happened with his dirty mouth. Listen, my friends, if God cleanses your dirty mouth, he has a place for you to fill. He immediately is going to say, who can I send to tell this person about Jesus Christ? If he can just cleanse your thoughts and heart in your heart, he'll bring the people to you. He'll bring the opportunities. He'll drive you to the place where you need to go. And it's not because you've made something happen. It's because He has done a work and has commissioned you to go. And you're, on or, you're there on orders from the King of Kings. And when that conviction settles into our hearts, friends, there's nothing that's going to stop it. In fact, He's sent to a people who will not repent, and God tells him right away, these people will never repent. In fact, he says, look at the message in verse 10. Verse 9, last part of verse 9. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. And he was supposed to do this to people who had hardened their hearts and were going to continue to harden their hearts. And he was going to do it until God brought judgment to the land. That's the hardest kind of preaching I know to do. You know, I love it here this morning. Because when you open the Word of God, y'all are sitting up and paying attention. But when you have people who hate God and despise His Word, that's the hardest preaching to do. And you ask Terry. He experiences it firsthand on the street. Listen, friends. God is making these kind of servants. Servants who are cleansed. Servants who have the work of Christ rooted within them. And they go because they've been commissioned by the Lord Himself. So I want to ask you this morning. How is it with you? Have you seen God face to face? Have you seen Him in His Word lifted up high and holy? Have you seen your sin? Have you seen that there's nothing you can do to stop the wrath of God from consuming you? Have you experienced the coal from the altar upon your mouth and upon your heart. If you have, then you're commissioned. You've got something to do. And I want to ask you, where are you this morning? Have you entered into the work of God? Has He put you in His work? It's not about whether you succeed with some great ministry. It's about whether you obey Him to the end. Isaiah didn't have a great showing. Nobody came to repentance. 
But he did what God told him to do. You see, friends, this is so different from what we deem as successful ministry today. It's so different from what we see as the ideal outreach. It's so different from what we see as the perfect outworking of the gospel. We're living in a day, friends, when people have hardened their hearts to the truth. And God's looking for people that have met Him face to face in His Word. And He's looking for people who know what it is to have their sins cleansed. And He's looking for people who are willing in the day of His power. He's going to send us as sheep among wolves. I believe with all my heart that every one of us is in a place where God is putting people in our lives. He's commissioned us with something to do. And the reason we don't is because we haven't seen, we aren't getting before his throne and seeing him in his word. So I asked this morning, whom shall he send? Who will go for him? I hope every one of us can say, here am I, send me. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we call upon your name this morning. We ask for your Holy Spirit to apply this truth to our lives, Lord. That your word may find its place of cleansing in our lives. Lord, I pray that these dear people will be given a vision of your truth, Father, and your, of your holiness, who you truly are. That myself... And all of us may truly see you for who you are and come before you with our sin. Recognize our undoneness and experience the cleansing that goes deep. That cleanses the heart from the things of this world. And that commissions us to live for him. Lord, I just pray that you would move us where you want us to go. We're yours. In Jesus' name.